Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. Some of you history buffs will know the name Antiochus IV. He was the uh, Greek king who reigned from 175 B.C. to 164 B.C. And at his coronation, he gave himself a new name. He rebranded. And he began to call himself Epiphany, or Antiochus Epiphanes, which literally means God made manifest. I, I mean, he had a lot of self-esteem. And he was a man of great extravagance. He wanted to prove that his reign had been blessed by the gods and, in fact, that his person had been invested by the gods. And so he spent a lot of money and beautified the country. And uh, and he, he was very interested in the arts and in architecture and in plays and in opulence and in Greek culture. But he had a... Uh, a personal vendetta against the Jewish culture. He really, really was deeply anti-Semitic. And and so he despised the Jews because he thought that they were backward. They wouldn't go along with the the kind of cultural developments that he thought were so important. Uh, So he thought of them as rather unsophisticated because they had a monotheistic religion that was too simplistic, and they had a restrictivist diet, and they, uh, they, they were separatists in their language and in their religious practices. They wouldn't blend with other cultures around them. At least many of the Jews wouldn't. And he despised them for that. And so he started to try uh, to blend their culture with other cultures. So he uh, forbade them to eat kosher foods and, in fact, would put them to death if they had an only kosher diet. And if mothers were ever found to have brought their children to rabbis for circumcision, he would have those mothers and their children killed. And, uh, and he, in fact, invaded the Jewish temple, the Holy of Holies, that most sacred of sites. And he had there, by his guard, sacrificed a pig on the altar of God. And a pig was understood by Jews to be an unclean animal. And so he smears the blood of the pig on the altar to defile the Holy of Holies. Uh, And so he was deeply despised by Israelites and was eventually, uh, he and his armies, expelled from the land by the Maccabean family. Um, That's a long story, but but the um, Antiochus Epiphanes, his character, is a blood-red reminder that there will always be rulers who believe too much in their own authority. And that they believe in some ways that they are the chosen one or the embodiment of heaven. That's very dangerous. Uh, And there's only one Epiphany King. And that's what we're here to celebrate tonight and really to wrap our lives around. This this great revelation that there's only one true Lord, you know. There's a lot of people that pretend to be embodiments of something eternal and heavenly. That they really believe that they are the embodiment of the most, right? Right? that they are the the, the superior one. And yet we're here tonight to say, no, that's all a lie. 
That's all a vulgar fiction because there's only one who was born in Bethlehem to be king of kings and lord of lords. And so I want to speak tonight about God made manifest, the epiphany, the true epiphany king, and say three things about him. He is welcoming, he is threatening, and he is altering. He's welcoming, he's threatening, and he's altering. And we see each of those themes in this passage from St. Matthew's Gospel. But first, the Epiphany King, the God-made-manifest King, is welcoming. And let's read this uh, together in verse 1 and 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Okay, so you have a caravan of unnamed, unnumbered magi. Now, you know, tradition tells us that there are three, and they base that number, by the way, on the three gifts, but we have no idea how many that there were. There could have been 200. We don't know. We don't know their names. All we know is what they brought, and we know about their disposition toward this child who was born and their faithfulness in following the signs as they understood them. They were from the east. We don't know what that means. Uh, Maybe Iraq, maybe Saudi Arabia, but they came from distant places. You know, they weren't Jews. Now, people wonder, how would they have understood the Jewish scriptures or certain prophetic elements? And there's actually a very easy explanation for that. You may think that uh, Judaism as a religion was contained only in the land of Judea, but that's actually not true um, because uh, in, like, Five, uh, I think it's 586 BC, uh, that's when the exile occurred, uh, and all these Jews were taken out of their homeland, and many of them were brought to Babylon, right, which is in Iraq. Well, not all of the Jews, after the exile was over, came home to Judea. Many of them, many of them stayed behind in Babylon and set up shop there and built Uh, and built uh, synagogues and study centers there. And Judaism had a very flourishing place in Babylon for many, many years. And so it was well known. The scriptures were well known, even in that part of the world. Uh, And so these, uh, these mystics, these astrologers, these magi, we don't exactly know what they were, uh, um, believed that because of this star, and remember star is just shorthand, ancient shorthand for any celestial phenomenon, this star um, appears and they believed that it heralded glad tidings, that there was something about this star that if they, if they traced it out right and they, and they believed that they understood where it was leading, that it would take them to a, to a great epiphany. Uh, and I want you to think with a Jewish brain for a minute, a first century Jewish brain about how weird this story is. Uh, because even though the Jews were spread out in different places all over the Roman Empire, they were a, a fairly exclusive religion. They were kind of like the Hutterites or the Amish, and they, they had a distant relationship with their neighbors or were supposed to um, because the law commanded that they not blend too much with their surroundings, that they ditched the tin gods of the, the, the empires in which they were present and that they didn't intermarry with pagans and that they didn't eat the way that the heathens would eat and things like that. Uh, and so, you know, they were a somewhat conclavist religion. But, but the founder of Judaism, a man that we talk a lot about a lot here because he's very significant, this old man named Abraham, was given a long-term vision for his country and his progeny right when he was called by God, right from the day he was chosen as special 
as alarmingly special. Uh, He was given a vision that his family would exist for more than just his family, that his family would help everybody, that everybody in the world would be better off because of them, uh, and uh, and that all nations and all families would be blessed because of him um, and and his family. And and so he thought that, that... uh, different tribes and different dialects and different sin patterns would be all those people represented by those things would be brought home to God. And we believe that Jesus Christ is the one who made that ancient promise come true. Uh, that's why St. Paul can write in Ephesians, which we were preaching through and will continue to preach through in the season of Epiphany. In Ephesians, Paul can write that Christ came for those who are far off and for those who are near for those who were in the family of Abraham and for those who had never heard of Abraham, uh, that he came for everybody, for the explorers and the traitors and the doubters and the conflicted and for me and for you and for everybody here, uh, that he came for all of us. Well, in, and in Jesus's early days, we see this trajectory begin to actually take shape uh, that, um, that, that these people from far off lands are mystically drawn, that God bends creation, if you will, in order to draw people toward a redemptive end, that he brings the Gentiles home. Um, And so God's truth, even at this moment, leaks through the geographic boundaries of Judea into Iraq or into Saudi Arabia, wherever it was. And this is supposed to send a message to us that is even fully, more fully fleshed out in the rest of the New Testament. And it's simply this, that God really does love the outcast and the outsiders and the unlikely. And people who have never read the Bible, who don't like the Bible, people who are very cynical about organized religion, people that uh, grew up in devastatingly terrible homes and uh, uh, people who have a lot of secrets on the inside, you know, people that harbor a lot of um, bitterness, all of them, all of us, you know, we're all brought in. That's the idea. Um, and, uh, and, and, and God is drawing all of um, those people um, to this child king. They all receive heaven's welcome. And that's why I think it's always good to have a church that has people in it who make you raise your eyebrows. There should be somebody in here that you, you know, you don't want to go on a camping trip. Well, I mean, you know, you're not going to go to Vegas with them. Well, maybe you wouldn't go to Vegas anyway, but, you know, you, you're not going on a road trip with this person, right? Because, you know, they're not your people. And yet, and yet, the, the point of epiphany is to say that God, um, God has a people that's bigger than your people. God is not interested in your limitations or in mine or in our tastes or our moods, you know, doesn't care, overrides them. That's what grace is all about. He extends farther than you think he's going to extend. And so thank God there are people in here tonight who might make you raise your eyebrows. Thank God for that, right? Because maybe you make somebody else raise their eyebrows, you know, like, We've all got something. We've all got a story, and we've all got idiosyncrasies that will drive the world crazy. And isn't it great that God in his grace says, I, I don't care what they think about you. I'll take you. Right. Well, we see that impulse here in, in this Epiphany King who welcomes these strangers from afar. And I think it's important to, to remember that the Antiochuses and the Herods of this world don't believe in that kind of thing. You know? 
They do not believe in welcome. They do not believe in warmth. They believe in threats and steal. That's it. And like, don't cross them ever. But this is the God who comes to people who do cross him and welcomes them in and says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Right? So the Epiphany King is welcoming. And at the same time, helpfully so, the Epiphany King is threatening. We read this in verse 3. Please follow along. This is verse 3 to 8. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it was written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Now, there's a little bit of dark humor in this passage. I think it's unwitting dark humor on the part of the Magi, but we can read it as a little bit funny. When the Magi go to the king of the Jews and ask where they can find the king of the Jews, right? they go to Herod the king and ask for the other king. Um, But notice how Herod behaves. He's not offended. You know, he's very open. He's religious. He's very spiritual. He's pious. Notice what he does. I mean, he's just a, he's a, he's a genius. What does he do? He consults the scholars. He doesn't just trust himself. He consults the, the learned people of the time. Then he studies the scripture. He understands the, the vow of the Old Testament about the Messiah's birth and how it will occur in Bethlehem. Then he tries to piggyback on the faithful with the Magi saying, I'm so glad you're here. It's very helpful for me. And uh, I want to be a pilgrim too, just like you. Uh, And then uh, he also has worshipful aspirations. He's like, you're here to worship. I'm, I'm a worshiper too, you know. Let me, let me, let me join you whenever you figure this thing out. But it's all a crimson ruse, you know, it's ridiculous. It's not, it's, nothing's true. Herod has murder on the mind, and a baby king was a threat. By the way, Herod had killed children before. The Hasmoneans, they were like the ruling dynasty in Judea before Herod came to the throne. There, there were young Hasmonean children of the royal line that um, Herod had baptized to death. I mean, he was a sick man who did sick things like that. Uh, and uh, and I think that there's a, a lesson in Herod's behavior. The lesson is something like this. Always beware of a, a, a ruler or an authority or a politician who lifts up a baby or a Bible because he's likely later to stomp on both. Just be careful. Don't be a sucker. Just because somebody plays a religious game and touts around religious language doesn't mean anything. Because anybody can do that, including Herod the Great. Um, You know, people often use us as props, or people pander to us. You know, they use us, they treat us like suckers for a power grab. But Herod, you know, he wasn't an idiot. He wasn't an idiot. He understood that this Christ was, in fact, a threat to him. He was right to understand Christ that way. Christ was a threat to him. 
Christ threatens anything or anyone that claims to be best or most, because nothing but Christ is best or most. Uh, you know, it's it's fascinating to me that the the Chinese government has a, san- a sanctioned church. You may know this called the Three Self Church. And uh, at least the last time that I heard reports from what was happening in the Three Self Church, they were forbidden to preach from the Book of Revelation. Why? Not just because it's mysterious and complex, but because ultimately it shows that the kingdom that will last forever is not the one started by Mao, but the one founded by Christ. And that's a very unwelcomed message when you're trying to create a utopia. Uh, and, and, and so it's a threatening thing that we have a Christ who has no rival. And, and not just for those outsiders, but I think it's threatening for me. Don't you think it's threatening for you or bits of you? I mean, what about the Herod within us? or the Herodian impulse, the part of us that loves to be most or best, the part of us that wants to be the most beautiful person in the room or the most fit person in the room or the most informed person in the room, the healthiest person in the room, the best leader in the room, the one uh, of whom it can be said, I've never seen them make a mistake. Well, I think Christ always threatens our mostness. So uh, this happened years ago, but I think it could still be said today. I was really freaking out about a sermon, and I was like, can you imagine being neurotic about it Uh, and like trying to perfect it before I would preach it to you? And Monique, my wife, who is um, who can very sweetly call me out on things without shaming me, which is very helpful. She says um, in her Italian way, what's your problem? Like, what, why are you what what is what is going on with you? I mean, I don't understand. You've done this now for like 13 years. You know, it's not your first rodeo. And I said, well, I just want every sermon to be better than the last sermon. And she said, what kind of a law is that? What kind of a law is that? So you can never rest. You can never just be okay. Everything has to be amazing all the time. That's insane. That front, that's insane. To be the most, there's only one who is the most. And it is not the man in this gorgeous getup. <laughs> no. No one. And it's not you either, right? And that's, that's not a condemning word. That's a relieving word. You don't have to be. What kind of a law is that? You don't have to be that person. We're all just struggling disciples of Jesus, and that's okay. Uh, and there's only one who is the most. And so we have an option. We have an option regarding the one who is the most. We can try to kill his voice, or we can finally say, I give up over to you. But it is a threatening thing to have a Messiah who is the most. So the Epiphany King is threatening, and Herod realized it. And lastly, the Epiphany King is altering. This is the last verse in our passage, verse 12. I love this verse. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, it's historical. I think it's also a little bit metaphorical. I I mean, it happened, but 
there's poetic power in those words, you know? Uh, this verse can be read with this twist in it that, yeah, the Magi went home by another way. You know, they disobeyed the civil authority because they encountered the true authority, and the true authority put them by divine supernatural providence on a different road. And I think that different road has vast meaning. I think nobody encounters Jesus and goes home the same way. Uh, um, Rod Rosenblatt, the Lutheran scholar, said that anybody who has ever encountered Jesus Christ goes away mad, sad, or glad. And I think that's true. Uh, T.S. Eliot, uh, who is quoted in every single epiphany sermon that has ever been preached because he wrote a poem called Journey of the Magi. So let me just be a living, breathing cliche with all of you. Um, uh, He wrote this beautiful poem about the Magi after they encountered the Christ child. And one of them is reflecting out loud. And this is what he's saying. One of the wise men says, were we led all that way for a birth or a death? There was a birth, certainly. We had evidence and no doubt. I had seen birth and death, but I thought they were different. This birth was hard and bitter agony for us, like death, even our death. We return to our places, these kingdoms, but no longer at ease here in the old dispensation with an alien people still clutching their gods. You know, they went home, but they didn't go home. They were released back to their places of origin, and yet they never really fit again. And I think that's true. When we encounter the one who is king of kings and lord of lords, when we have a a taste of the new life, when we begin to gulp the grace of God, when we realize that we're not justified by our improvement, when we realize that we don't have to be most and we can't be anyway, we, we never really fit in a world that is feverishly trying to be most anymore. Yeah. I think Jesus in that way makes us sacred skeptics, you know, skeptical about the power claims and mostness of our leaders and ourselves. I, I think that's why St. Paul says after there's this divine encounter with the risen son of God, we are aliens and foreigners in this world. We don't belong to the old dispensation. We don't belong to Antiochus or Herod or the Herods that live within us. And, and therefore, Jesus Christ alters things. Jesus is a very complex Messiah, right? Because he comforts as well as discomforts, both for our everlasting benefit, by the way. Like, you'll never find a consolation like the consolation of love that's in Christ because he doesn't need you to be amazing, right? And so there's a love there that will meet you tonight, regardless of your mood before you came into this service. At the same time, he begins to dishevel some of the securities that we've built in life, not to harm us, but to help us. And so we come to a complex Messiah who loves us uh, uh, so much that he won't comfort every aspect of us. 
Um, By the way, Simeon, the old man in the temple, predicted this. Remember, Eric preached about it last Sunday. Simeon was this old man who was, he got a vow from God that he wouldn't die until he saw the Messiah. So he clutches the baby Messiah and he looks at the mom and he says, uh, this baby will cause the rising and falling of many in Israel. And that was true individual by individual. But I think it's also true of the inner life of a single individual. He will cause the rising and falling of many aspects of each of us. That nothing will be the same after this close encounter. And so this text, friends, is about God made manifest, the Epiphany King. And so the Epiphany King is welcoming, threatening, and altering all at the same time. And as this Epiphany burrows into our hearts, we'll no doubt feel these themes again and again in our pilgrimage. But um, let me end with a little good news for all of us. You know, the good news is that uh, all the other pretenders are, at least of the past, and even the ones in the present, that they, they won't last forever. Herod is dead. Antiochus is even deader than Herod. And nobody is ever going to sing a song about Antiochus. And nobody will pray to Herod. And no buildings will ever be built in their honor. But the true epiphanal king lives on unerringly and eternally. Dead, yes, but raised to life again. And while the empires of this world, including our own, have shelved lives and expiration dates, we belong to the one who triumphed over the world, not by abuse, but by sacrificial love. And his kingdom is the only one that does not crumble nor tremble. Remember what the book of Revelation says. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. And he, and only he, shall reign forever and ever. Amen. They took your life. They could not take your